0: Hi everybody, how are we doing? Good. I don't know lots of you, because I don't normally come to 6.30, especially students. I'm normally at home chasing three small people into the bath and into bed as fast as I possibly can, so that I can watch the Strictly results. Um, But anyway, it's fun to be here with you guys. Um... So yeah, for most of us maybe in the room, you know we've been going through Romans 12, um, and so we're back into it this week with verse 9 and 10, which, as you just read, says, Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love honor one another above yourselves. And in the NIV version of the Bible, there's a little subheading just before this verse that says, love in action. So we're moving into Paul's description of what it looks like to love each other. Um, A while ago, I read a book called Phoebe um, by a author called Paula Gooder. Has anyone read it? She's my friend. That's why she's my friend. Anna, David, um, and David and And I don't. Someone bought it for me, and I don't know if they really knew what it was about. But I think they were excited that it had the same name as my oldest daughter. So they just bought me this book called Phoebe. But it turns out it was great. And uh, it's all about this letter that we're reading in Romans. And and so this letter is written by Paul, who is in Corinth, and he's writing to the church in Rome. And he chooses his friend Phoebe to deliver the letter and probably read it and help the church kind of understand what is. Paul talking about, and um, the, the kind of then the story is like woven around this woman, and it's really interesting, um, and it kind of becomes like slightly fictional in terms of Paula Gooders kind of imagining what this lady's life may have been, and all these things, but the thing that really struck me in reading this book was the description of what the early church was like, and sometimes like we know these things, we're like, oh yeah, the early church, they were great, brilliant, um, but because it's like, you know, a 400-page book, and she's constantly referring back to this community of people that are trying to figure out how to do life together that are vastly different. So you've got in the community of people in the in the book she's talking about, but also you know, pretty sure that's what the early church was like, you've got like some people who are so proudly Jewish, and they're so proud of their heritage, and they're so grateful to be of that, um, of, a, of a Jewish descent, and they love the customs and the traditions, and it's really, really important to them that that is recognised, and that people know that they are God's chosen and really special people. So you've got, you've got that in one side, and then you've got what people refer to as the Gentiles, and they're people who are not in that sort of club, they're kind of outside of it and they could be from anywhere but they're not from Israel and and they're kind of free from the law so apparently they were kind of quite proud that they didn't have to obey all these rules and regulations that they could kind of come to Jesus in a different way and then you've got also you've got like slaves in there or freed slaves and then you've got slave owners who are very used to telling the slaves what to do you know what to do for them and suddenly they come into this community where they're equal and they're supposed to love one another and then you've got like women who suddenly have found their voice when before they're supposed to be silent and you and you've got rich people and poor people and it's vastly different and paul is writing into that context of people that don't actually normally spend time together that wouldn't ever choose to sit and share a meal that actually don't like each other that consider them to be like unclean and unwanted or pious and overly religious or whatever it might be and so he writes into this context and he calls them to love each other and i think we can miss how huge that was and in the book like they kind of explode when they hear the letter like they're so annoyed with paul when they get it because they're like doesn't he understand us doesn't he understand how important I am? Or doesn't he understand that that's a slave or whatever it might be? And we, we've got to like hold that in our, in our mind when we're thinking about this letter, that it wasn't an easy ask that Paul makes. And maybe we find that too. That when we're called to love each other, we're like, but that person is kind of annoying. Or that person thinks like that, or that person, whatever. But it was hard then. It was hard when Paul wrote it to the Roman church, and maybe it's still hard now. And, um, and he's calling them, Paul is calling them to this way that is so different to the culture they're living in. They're living in Rome, like the centre of the Roman Empire, and what Paul calls them to do, and the way he's asking them to love each other, is like the absolute opposite to what the culture they exist within is, is promoting and is, is calling them into. So... The first verse says that love is sincere. And this means that the love is like genuine, it's without deceit, and it proceeds from like an honest, truthful place. There's no hypocrisy, it doesn't claim to be something that it isn't. It's this really pure love. And, um, As you probably know, I'm not a Greek scholar, but Bob told me, who has done about three weeks of Greek at Bible College, um, that there's, I think there's four words for love in the Greek uh, language, And, and, and this one word is like developed in the New Testament because they need a word to describe like God's love, and this word is agape, is that how you say it, Anna? You're probably a scholar. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, so this word agape and, um, and it's like a word to describe God's love for us and so that famous verse of like for God so loved the world he sent his one and only son it's like for God so agape the world it's that kind of love it's like the father heart love that is bestowed on us and it's also described as the love that we are called to love one another in as well to imitate this love Romans 5, 8 says but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Agape love is the kind of love that sacrifices and gives away before anyone is deserving of it. It's like this sincere love that you can't fake, you can't like try and sum it up. You have to get it from the source of that kind of love, the being of love, the love that we find in God. And I was thinking, like how do we actually like receive that love like if that 's the place we 've got to go to to be able to love each other sincerely like how does how does that work w- What does it mean to receive god 's love to receive what he wants to give us. And I guess like the first and most obvious place is we receive God's love through the death and resurrection of Jesus, don't we? That he would lay his life down for us to show his great love for you. And then the revelation of the Holy Spirit, what he's doing in us is constantly revealing the love of God for us. But also it's just time. He's just calling your time. He wants your time. He wants your being. He wants your presence that he would be able to pour his love into you. And um, I was at this conference recently and the whole thing was around um, the John 15, I am the vine, remain in me. And even though I've heard that like so many times, I was just struck again like that is what it is, It's to abide, it's to remain. Like Jesus is the vine, you're the branch, apart from him you can do nothing, but in him you could do anything. And that you've got to be, like, you've got to remain in the vine to be in his love. And then the fruit, surely, of being in the vine, of being the branch, will be love. Like, we will produce, we will be fruitful in love. And the world needs it, doesn't it? Like Judah's prayers, there it is. How much does all those things he mentioned need the love of God to touch them? And when we spend time with God, we receive his heart, don't we? We begin to be able to work out how do we hold and carry God's heart and that heart in us would be like so deeply rooted for the people that he's made. It can't be surface level when it's God's heart in us, it's like a deep love and in that comes this desire for justice and kindness and transformation and we're hungry that the kingdom of God would come wherever we go because we know that when the kingdom of God touches his love like overwhelms us and frees us and changes us and this is a love that loves us first, and we can take the opportunity to reach out before anybody else reaches for it. We can offer this love before anybody even asks for it. And I want to read you this story that um, I don't think I've ever told here before. But Bob and I heard it. And you know one of those stories where you like never forget it. It's like we heard it so many years ago, but it's such a great story. And um, it's by this, this lady called Beth Moore, who's like an American writer. And um, she tells this story that she sat in an airport lounge. Um, somewhere in the States, and um, and a really strange sight comes in. She says, this old man is wheeled into the uh, waiting room, and she describes him as skin and bones, dressed in clothes that obviously fit when he was 20 pounds heavier. His knees protruded from his trousers. His shoulders looked like the coat hanger was still in his shirt. His hands were a tangled mess of veins and bones, and the strangest part of him was his hair and nails. Stringy gray hair hung well over his shoulders and down part of his back. It was, a strange, it was strangely out of place on an old man. And she talks about how she was desperately trying not to stare at him and just read the Bible and just be with Jesus in that moment. But she started to feel this like overwhelming feeling for this man. And she's just like, no, Lord, no, 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 no. Like, let me just concentrate on what I'm doing. And then she starts praying, like, I'm not going to witness to him, Lord. Don't make me go and speak to him. I don't want to do it. And she's having this inner dialogue with God, like, I'm not going, I'm not going. Please don't make me go. Please don't make me go. Everybody's watching. And then she says in this moment, she heard Jesus say, I'm not going to ask you to witness to him, but I'd like you to brush his hair. And then she says that she quickly was like, I'll witness, I'll witness, I'll go wherever you want. Just don't make me brush his hair. But she does it. And she says she like, almost has to force herself. Like She feels so embarrassed at the idea of having to do this in front of everybody. But over she goes. She goes over and asks him if she could brush his hair. And he says, sorry, you're going to have to speak up. I can't hear you. I would love to brush your hair, I still can't hear you, I would love to brush your hair as the entire room looks at her asking this old, slightly odd looking man if she could brush his hair. And then she says, I don't have a hairbrush and he says, I've got one in my bag, so she starts to brush his hair. And then she says, a miraculous thing happened to me as I was brushing the old man's hair, everybody else in the room disappeared. There was no one alive for those moments except that old man and me. I brushed and I brushed until I brushed every tangle out of his hair. I know this sounds strange, but I've never felt that kind of love for another soul in my entire life. I believe with my whole heart. For that few minutes, I felt like a portion of the very love of God. It overtaken my heart for a little while, like someone renting a room and making themselves at home for a short stay. The emotions were so strong and so pure, I knew they had to be God. Finally, When his hair was soft and smooth, I got on my knees and I asked him, Sir, do you know Jesus? And he said, well, yes, I do. And he says, I met him when I met my wife, and she wouldn't marry me unless I met her saviour. And then he says, you see, the problem is, I still haven't, I haven't seen my bride in months. I've had open heart surgery, and she's been too ill to come and see me. I was sitting here thinking to myself, what a mess, I must look for my bride." Only God knows how often he allows us to be part of a divine moment when we're completely unaware of the significance. This was one of those rare encounters when I knew God had intervened in the details. Only he could have known. It's a God moment I'd never forget. And then she says later, as he was wheeled onto the plane and the air sewer came back to her and she's sobbing and she looks at Beth and she says, Why did you do that? What made you do that? And Beth says, Do you know Jesus? And that's the end of the story. And I wonder if that reminds you of what it might look like if we carry God's heart wherever we are. If we dwell and abide so much in his presence that when we are sat in an airport lounge and some slightly odd person gets rolled in, that actually our heart begins to be overwhelmed with a sense of love for that person that we might even be willing to brush their hair. So the next part of the verse says that um, we would uh, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And um, hating evil means like absolutely loathing it, like abhorring it, like it's the absolute worst thing. And you of course we want to run away from it and you'd want to run towards what's good and stick like glue to it. But we don't talk about evil that much, do we? Like as in when we watch the news, it's pretty clear to see the impact of evil all around us. And and that causes, you know, us to pray and we we're desperate for God's kingdom to come in those places. But I sometimes think there's like really subtle evil that we don't notice. And we don't want to call it evil because it feels like a bit of an odd word sometimes, but it, it is evil. And um, Jesus in John 10 describes the devil and he says that he's come to steal, lie and destroy. And I think we can see that all over the place, can't we? I, I've been, a, I used to be a youth worker. That's what I did uh, for a long time, and um, one of the things that would make me angry, and really angry, which is probably quite hard to imagine, um, is when a young person would come to me, and they would, they would talk about themselves in ways that were so far removed from how God saw them. They were so wrapped in lies about what they looked like, that they were worthless, that they weren't good enough, all this stuff, and I just would be like, "Oh!" That is so far away from the person that God has made you to be. How is it possible that at age 14 you think that about yourself? That's rubbish, that's absolute rubbish. And there's nothing quite like, would make me like raw, literally, than that. Because it's not okay, is it? It's not okay when we hear people we love, people we know who are crippled by lies that are slowly being dropped in. When they look in the mirror, it's telling them, you're not really good enough. You don't look like that random person on TikTok, so you're not really good enough. The person that God made you to be isn't really good enough. You don't have any worth. And slowly they believe that about themselves. And the the devil is, like, stealing life from people we love. What about the lies around, like, our security and our identity? That, like, we've got to have that job or this job or earn that much or that house or whatever. And you can only really be secure. You can only be, like, safe If you've got that stuff wrapped up in your pension, or you've got this, or you've got that, that's a lie. That limits us. If we're so trapped in what the world is telling us that we can't break free and be the people that God's called us to be, that's a lie. And something's being stolen from us. What about the shame that we get told about that the stuff that you've done somehow disqualifies you? You know, like, oh, because you did that thing, or you struggle with that thing, There's a lie being whispered so often that tells you that you are now disqualified. You don't get to play, you don't get to join in because of that thing that's going on in your life. That's a lie. You know what the devil did, like does all the time, from the very beginning of time, he wants to lie about who you are and who God is. When he meets Eve as a serpent and he says to her, did God really say? He lies all the time. And we often don't see it. And we've got to see it, we've got to be hanging out with Jesus in such a way that as we're receiving his heart, we're becoming switched on to the stuff that isn't there, that we're able to discern between good and between evil. And the other lies, like I've just said, it's like about God and who he is and how he feels about you. And is he actually good? Does he actually have good things for your future? Does he actually have plans and purposes for your life? That's the other kind of lies he might try and tell you that steal and destroy from you and from all that God has for you. So I think that not only do we receive love when we hang out with Jesus and hold his heart, but also he gives us this discernment because we're walking so closely with such an incredibly good heart that we're switched on to those things that are not good. The things that are not in his head about you, but are in your head about you. The more time we spend with him, the more we can discern that is evil and I will flee from it. And that is good and I will cling to it. And also, as we see it, it's going to stir you to pray for people. It's going to stir you to pray for your friends when you hear them talk about themselves and you're like, that is not who you are. It's going to stir you to pray for freedom. And for justice and for transformation and for revival. And you're going to get to talk to people who you wouldn't probably meet because God knows that you get it, that you can recognize the stuff that's not His and He wants you to break off over people's life. That is so exciting, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, James. Um, So we move from this verse 9 of love is sincere and hates what's evil and clings to what's good. And we're going to head into verse 10, which says, be devoted to one another with brotherly love. And affection, <clears throat> sorry, prefer one another in honor. Paul has, it's a long letter, isn't it, Romans? We're only in Romans 12, but we could have been going for like months if we'd started at chapter one. And part of what he's doing in this letter is he's talking about like the gospel, about like essentially what Jesus did and talks about justification, all these great things. But one of the things he's doing is laying this foundation that because we have faith, a like shared faith in Jesus, one of the things that happens is we become family. Because of our shared like family in him, we become family and so this second verse uh, verse 10 is like Paul's beginning to call us into family and um, and I know some sometimes family like has like tough connotations, but this is like the great family with a great dad and um and it's where we put others, like above ourselves, and we treat people with great honour. And also where family has got it wrong. I know that church has got it wrong. I know that the church has hurt people, and it's imperfect, and some of us sitting here will have been hurt by church, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, and pray about it, and talk to people, because it's really important. But this picture is what church could be, and should be. So I'm not disregarding that church does get it wrong, but tonight we're thinking about where it could get it right, and how exciting that would be. So, devotion, prefer one another and honour. I don't know, they're not words we hear very often, are they? I don't know. I don't feel like there's many movies around that kind of thing or whatever. And uh, I don't think we hear it in culture a lot. Maybe we use it with people we really like, our tight friends and our family. Maybe we'd talk about being devoted to them and putting them first and honouring them. But how about with people that you don't really like and you find it really hard to get on with? And that's, that's the people that that paul is writing about in the roman church and that's what he's writing you know if he's writing to us he'd be saying the same thing it's not just the people that make you feel good that you are going to prefer and honor it's the people that you find tough and hard but it's exciting because it's the it's the way of jesus and it's what he's calling so it's going to be good and um, I was thinking, I wonder, like, when the, when the guys in the Roman church were, like, hearing it, whether they were, like, mentally, like, writing a list as to all the reasons why they could push back and be like, well, actually, I'm not going to love that person, and actually, I... And I was thinking, sometimes I think we do that. We're like, yeah, that's really nice. Like, devotion sounds quite intense, and quite a lot of time needs to be poured into devotion. I'm actually really busy. I'm actually a really busy person. So I'm just going to invest in the people that I like and that are kind of easy to hang out with because I'm a really busy person. Or actually, I'm really invested elsewhere, so I can't really do that. And I wish that I could say that's fine, but I think Paul's pretty clear that in our church community, in the church, we are to love each other with a devotion that prefers one another in honor. So I would love to have some good excuses for you, but I haven't got one. That's just it, that's just the call. So i'm going to kind of wrap up this idea of devotion preferring one another in the word honor and i think honor is recognizing the value importance and contribution of other people it's not based on your likes or dislikes but it's based on the truth that they have been made in the image of god as have you and um i've got a good friend who um went out to be a student at a big church in california and, um, and, and they brought out this book called A Culture of Honour. It's by a guy called Danny Silk and my, and my and your friend. Uh, we were there together. And uh, anyway, I went to visit. And um, the church has, like, many things that it's running after. But one of the things was this, like, culture of honour, this, like, preference of other people, this culture of encouragement, this culture of love. And uh, I can honestly say I have never, ever felt sort of so loved as a complete stranger in a church as I did when I went there. Walked in on Sunday morning, and it honestly felt like there were people like, almost queuing to encourage you and to find out, like, who are you? Like, what are you doing here? Like, da 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 all these things. And I just, like, came away feeling like, wow, I am amazing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, on, genuinely, it's like people almost were like, we want to bless you. Like, we want to pray for you. We feel like God's saying this. And, oh, my goodness, we can see this in you. You're so great. blah blah. blah. But it wasn't, it wasn't, like, fake. It was actually genuine, like, hunger to honor me. But they didn't know anything about me. You know, there was nothing obvious to honor, but that was the culture they were so working towards. It was like, we want to prefer one another. We want to love one another. And um, they weren't like the, the like church team. They weren't paid to do that. They were just the normal people who worked like Monday to Friday, nine to five jobs. But they were like dug in to this culture where we would be devoted and prefer one another. And the effect of it is amazing. It's absolutely a beautiful place to go and experience like a community of people that are devoted and love one another and it's not a new idea I think Jesus is probably the founder of the culture of honor but maybe they just stole the title and um and I was thinking you know like I love the stories of Jesus I love them so much I love imagining what it was like for those people to encounter him in in person like that you know these people that are often on the edge Often for some reason, like ostracized or broken or not wanted or not welcome or not clean, or all these different things. And it was like those people that time and time again he just seemed to lean in towards and he showed them such honor. I just think it must have felt so incredible to have this man who was doing these amazing things, who people were talking about, people were crowding around, wanting to see. And yet he would lean in, and he would be like, I see you. I see beyond what everybody else is dishonoring, and I honor you, and I value you. And I was thinking about the, the guy with leprosy that he heals. And, um, you know, people with leprosy were, like, fully shunned and outcast. Nobody wanted to catch it, which, you know, is understandable. You don't want to catch leprosy. But they were so, so removed from, from family and community. And then when this guy comes towards Jesus to be healed, and I love that the text says that Jesus touched him like he hasn't probably been touched in a long time and Jesus touches him and there's something about that that is so honoring because Jesus is like I don't care about this I see you I love you and I'm willing to touch you I just think that is such a beautiful picture of honor and um, and we see that with Jesus all the time and we see that in our own lives don't we when he comes in and meets with us, he doesn't want to like, shame us or dishonor us. He is bestowing value and love on us. He always is able to see past the stuff to the person. So what about us? <laughs> what do Paul's words about devotion and honor and preferring one another have to do with us at Exeter Network Church? And I I was thinking, like, what would it look like if we took it seriously? Like, what would be the differences that we'd see? And honestly, I love this church so much, and I feel so loved and valued. Like, from the moment we rocked up, it's a wonderful family. It's a wonderful community. But I could still see so much more if we took this seriously. And I wonder, like, whether we'd see even more celebration. Like, there'd be so much more to celebrate because we'd be constantly looking for it. We'd stop competing with each other. We'd stop comparing. We'd stop being worried about what somebody else is doing and that making us feel less or making us feel more because we'd be like we are mutually honoring and we are mutually devoted to each other. So I think there would be like an high, even higher level of celebration which would fit very well within the values of EMC. And I think that we would all walk increasingly in our God-given identity. Don't you think? Like We'd like walk taller We'd walk more confidently and boldly because we'd be so strengthened by other people around us seeing us for who we are and calling that out and encouraging us and wanting us to flourish. We'd be like, yeah, we're co-heirs with Jesus. Here I come, wouldn't we? Because that's what everybody would be kind of encouraging in us. Rather than everyone being too awkward to even say hi to someone, we'd be like out there, like, bam, you're like made in Christ's image. How exciting is that? Maybe. Maybe you wouldn't because no one looks very excited at all. But I, if I was very committed to this verse, might be more like that. So maybe we would do conflict better as well. Don't you think we'd be much better at like dealing with our issues with people like rather than pretending that everything's fine or just exploding or whatever else happens. Like we'd be like, hey, like I am devoted to you, but this is hard or you've hurt me or I've hurt you or whatever it might be. And like, therefore there'd be like reconciliation and forgiveness that would abound. And that would be amazing and like, I also think that if all those things were happening, if there was like true devotion and sincere love, don't you think that people that are so hungry for love would look in and be like, what is that? Who are they? What is that that holds that bunch of random people together? And we'd be like, it's Jesus. Have you met him? And wouldn't that be fun? Yes, it would. And um, so... I was thinking, what like, what's the outworking of that? And I just, we've got to spend time with God. We've got to grow in his love. We've got to ask for his heart. And actually, that's quite a weighty prayer, to ask for God's heart. It's quite a weighty thing, because it's big. It's compassionate. It's strong. It's going to fight for justice. It's going to force you out of your comfort zone. But we ask the Lord, like, give us your heart. We want it. And and for some of us, it's also about dealing with the, like, those subtle lies and the stu- subtle like, stealing of truth and, and distorting what's good. Because we often, if we're coming, believing all this stuff about ourselves, then we actually don't think we've got anything to offer. And you guys have got so much to offer. You are made in the image of God. So w- what, what like, heights are there of what you guys bring? And um, maybe we need to like, forgive some people. Maybe we need to have tough conversations in order for us to let go of stuff, that we'd be able to mutually honor and be devoted to one another. We are called to the way of love and it's completely impossible without God. And yet, he is the one that makes all things possible. So what I've said sounds like a fairy tale, except it can't be. Because if God can do anything and if God is calling us to a love like this, then it has to be possible, doesn't it? That here at ENC, that we could genuinely love with deep devotion, with commitment, with commitment to prefer one another, and to honor one another. So, would you like to stand? Thank you. And I just think, let's just pray that God would give us his heart. It's a big prayer. It's quite a scary prayer, I think. But I think it would be so exciting for us to have more and more of his heart and his love.